We're looking at three conversion uh, stories this morning, all from Acts 16. This is the first. Uh, the three conversion stories are going to be, first of all, of Lydia, this rich businesswoman, more in a moment, a uh, slave girl, and a jailer, a working man. Uh, just one piece of context about this. This is the first passage in the Acts of the Apostles that is known as a, a we passage, W-E, uh, because the narrative, the uh, uh, the narrative suddenly moves into the kind of, we did this, we did that, they said to us. And the general feeling is that Luke, who is normally attributed to have written the Acts of the Apostles, joins the party, the missionary party, at this point, and rather than being told something and narrating, it actually almost keeps a kind of travel log. Uh, and so this is written almost in first hand. Um, Lydia. We're told various things about Lydia. First of all, she's a businesswoman. She's a trader in purple cloth. And at that time, purple cloth was highly expensive because the dye that you used to get the purple came from thousands of a certain kind of seashell that uh, was found almost exclusively in the coastal area around Thyatira, which is where she was from. Uh, it was in what is now Turkey and was then known as Asia Minor. So she's a foreigner. She's here in this Roman fort, but she comes from effectively from Asia. And she may well be a, mid a widow. The implication is that therefore she's wealthy, and she certainly has a house and household big enough to accommodate all the missionary party because she says, come to my house. She's described as a worshipper of God which probably means that she was a person who had a belief in the one true God of the Jews, but wasn't a convert to Judaism. But let's go backwards a little. Paul had intended to go east, incidentally to within a few miles of the area that Lydia comes from, Thyatira. But the Spirit says to him, no, don't go east. And part of the way of God saying no is that Paul has a vision or a dream of a Macedonian man, somebody in the West going towards Europe, saying to them, come over and help us. And so Paul goes West, not East. And the earlier verses that's just been read for us describe the journey of how this small group of Christian leaders land by ship in port and then walk along the coast to Philippi. On the Sabbath, we've no idea how long they've been there, Paul and the others set off to go to where the Jews meet for worship. And we're meant, I guess, to think that they're going to a synagogue. But instead of a synagogue, which he might have expected to find in a place as large as Philippi, he comes across a group of women meeting for prayer. And some of the people who've written about this passage say that that suggests that there actually wasn't any Jewish synagogues in Philippi at that time. Which effectively, if that's the case, signals very clearly the pagan nature of the city. If you've got a city of quite substantial figures without 10 men able to form a synagogue, it must be pretty Roman, it must be pretty pagan. The texts, uh, the introductions are made and the women invite Paul to speak. We don't know what he spoke, but we do know that Lydia and several of the other women that were there responded to the gospel that morning. 
The text said about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. And that's a way of basically saying she got it. And isn't it true that sometimes you've sat through hundreds and hundreds of sermons and you've gone through the story of the parable of the prodigal son so many times you think you can say it, but all of a sudden you get it. And this was that occasion for Lydia. The Greek word used to render listen eagerly in English means to lust after like a heavy drinker of wine needs a drink. She longed for this word and when it came, she received it gladly. And the first thing she does is invite them to her home and she and her household are all baptized and by the end of the chapter, which we're not going to read today by verse 40, her home has become the first church in Philippi. I want you to notice that with a view to our church. The first thing this convert does is open her home. Where God opens hearts, God opens the home, the place, the fellowship, the space. It could be our home, but this morning I want us to think particularly of church as home. People who have been accepted need to become accepting. Those who realize that they're the subject of God's invitation need to live in a way which is invitational. A key element of amazing grace is hospitality. And one of the key reasons that recent documents have noted and charted the steep decline in Methodist congregations and worship is not because we failed to believe the gospel or sometimes not even because we failed to do decent things. It's because congregations move slowly but surely into a time where they think that what we're doing this morning and the rest of the time in the building is somehow for us. When in fact it's for two other important groupings than us. First of all, it's for the glory of God. And secondly, in the Christian community, it's for the others. Lydia opens her home because her heart has been opened. Note too that the text hints that it's Paul and his group that are rather reluctant to agree to this invitation from this Asian woman. Lydia's not reluctant to invite them. You can almost see that same kind of feeling that some of the Jews had when we read about Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, where they're looking at one another and saying, dare we go stop with an unclean Gentile? Will we be all right? Will we, will we get funny germs when we walk through the door? And eventually they look at one another and agree that the right thing to do is to go. Open doors, inviting spaces, non-judgmental environments, places of hospitality and sanctuary, they're the signs that a gracious God has moved into our lives. How evident is that in the life of our church? So let's take stock for the end of this first bit. The Lord brings Lydia from the east, from Turkey to Philippi in the west. The Lord tells Paul who wants to go east to go west, and he comes to Philippi. 
The Lord brings Paul and Philip and Lydia together so that she can be saved and also perhaps that Paul could learn again to rethink his attitudes about hospitality and possibly about women. If you'd asked Paul, for instance, on the boat going over there, if his aim was to start a church with a group of women, he'd have probably laughed. No way, he'd say. So we must just wonder, at what point did Paul realize that his Macedonian man turned out to be an Asian woman? So then there's this slave girl, soothsayer, a fortune teller with an evil spirit. 
The Greek text describes her as having a python spirit, as in snake, probably referring to the ornate snake sculpture that guarded the Delphic oracle in central Greece. The Greek god Apollo was said to have killed the actual snake and its ability to predict the future then entered into high priestesses and then spread through other women. This young girl is one person, part of that legacy. So possessing a python spirit or being possessed by a python spirit, probably both, meant that the girl was said to be able to tell the future and this gift was exploited by her owners to make them a fortune. In a word, she was essentially being trafficked. The next bit of the passage isn't very clear in meaning. The girl seems to walk round exclaiming to all and sundry, these men are servants of the Most High God and they're proclaiming the way of salvation. And that's true. In which case, was she doing them a favor? Telling the truth about them? Or was she being sarcastic? Did her words assist the mission or hamper it? Well, we don't know. What we do know is that Paul got sick and tired of it. The same as you do when, you know, you're woken up seven times a night with a crying baby, in spite of all your love. The text implies that Paul had a number of emotions. It's much more subtle than the word in the scriptures about annoyed. The Greek word that's there rendered annoyed means this. He's aggravated by her shouting. He's angry about the situation. But he comes also to grieve about the situation the girl finds herself in, in captivity and exploitation and abuse. And therefore he's saddened that she is in double bondage, as it were. She's bound to the evil spirit and she's bound to evil traffickers. And with this complicated set of emotions that are all poured into this English word annoyed, Paul has had enough and at a certain point turns round and casts the evil spirit out of her. And the scripture in a rather subtle way makes it quite clear that God has set her free from both kinds of bondage. Luke makes it clear in a very cunning way because he records Paul using the same word twice. The Greek word is excelthen, which means has gone or left. So the evil spirit has gone and the means of her making money has gone. We don't know for certain whether the girl is then converted and joins the church at Lydia's place. I'd like to think she does and the fact that her little story is sandwiched between two people who were very clearly converted, Lydia and in a few moments the jailer, suggests that she was. Or are we witnessing somebody, and there's plenty about in every church fellowship, who are not soundly converted just like that, but enter the fellowship with all kinds of history and baggage and have some way to go on a journey before they and anybody else can turn around and say, I fully received saving grace in Christ. Perhaps at first, all this young slave girl knows is that her life has changed and that there's a group of people who have something to do with that. 
and slowly, like somebody pulling a chair nearer to a group with a space in the circle, week by week she just moves inch by inch towards the circle to them and to Christ. If so, what a great church that enables people like slave girls to come and join it. What we do know is that Paul's exorcism worked. Otherwise, her owners wouldn't have grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them down into the marketplace for the court to the courts to complain about them. Her owners are absolutely incandescent. Paul has killed their golden goose. We uh, sing Amazing Grace. The jailer was almost certainly ex-military. Philippi is a military port. It was a major garrison for the Roman army. This is like the security guy who was a member of the CID and now works for some security. He's a hard man. He could take prisoners with their backs bleeding, throw them into prison, fasten their feet into stocks, lock the door, and go have a good night's rest. And in prison and in pain and in shackles, Paul and Silas are singing at midnight. Praise to God and hope in Christ. Uh, on the bus this morning, Joyce and I came across one another and uh, I found myself telling her about a trip to Cuba of about 12 years ago. And uh, it was a, a trip where I preached every night for tw 27 nights. I only had one sermon, but I preached it 27 times. Uh, and it was because such renewal was happening in the church in Cuba, I'll tell you about it sometime, uh, that we were over there to do a crash course for ministers. But one village I went to partway through the journey had been absolutely flattened by a, a tornado that had come across. And so uh, they were busy rebuilding the building. It didn't take very long. They were, they, they were wooden huts with sort of corrugated iron roofs. Uh, they made the church first, uh, which was also the home of the pastor because you're not supposed to have a separate church building. So you sort of walked out of the kitchen of the pastor's house and into uh, a big uh, area for worship, like his back room. And I always remember with an impish grin, one of them sort of said, we've made it twice as big. And because it's been flattened and rebuilt so quickly, no one will know. And then they went round the rest of the town because everything was flattened. They were living out in the open air. And then after the chapel was built, the church was built, they then chose the oldest families in the little village and they built the people who had most need their house first and then got further and further until they'd done and they were building the buildings as I arrived. There was about half the town done. And the thing that characterized it was that all the time that they were building this town, this rebuilding their town, that had been flattened by natural causes, they just sang praise to God all the time. And I thought, gosh, you've had everything of your life blown away and you're now building houses one by one and they're characterized as you bring wood and put nails and put by songs and praise to God. Do you know we so often in the West behave as if 
A simple setback simply spells the end. We give it up. How much in the comfy, unpersecuted West do we have to learn about the doggedness, the sheer resilience of faith? Well, then there's the earthquake. And the earth moving is the clincher for this jailer. He releases Paul and Silas. He recognizes that everybody's there and he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And the response in the book of Acts is one of those classic things because what Paul says to the jailer is what preachers have said rightly every day down to today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul leads him to Christ, a man who in the hours previous will have sworn at him, spit on him, ridiculed him, beaten him up, and treated him as less than nothing. Now that's grace. And note this, that when the jailer is saved, the first thing he does is wash the wounds of the apostles. Remember what I said about hospitality? Besides praying and reading the Bible, the early Methodists, a name of ridicule originally, remember, started pharmacies, visited those in prison and walked with them as they went to the gallows. Because care and tending and compassion are fruits of grace. It's not done in order to try and save people It's done because you're saved. And this man's family are baptized like Lydia's were. One romantic commentator suggests that in the absence of a lot of water, Paul may have baptized them in the very common bowl that's just been used to tend his wounds. The jailer washed them and was then washed. Sanctifying cleansing grace begins in his life well have you heard the one about the rich woman the slave girl and the jailer it sounds like a joke doesn't it but notice how these three conversions are so deliberately different because these aren't here by accident Luke's put these together very deliberately first of all they're racially different Lydia is an Asian and therefore a migrant because Philippi is a Greek, then a Roman citizen. The slave girl is nothing, but likely comes from the Greek-influenced pagan world, and the jailer is almost certainly a Roman. They're economically different. Lydia is rich and respectable, the slave girl is poor, and the jailer is just an ordinary working bloke doing his job. The circumstances in which they encounter Christ are different. Lydia is at a prayer meeting, the slave girl's on the streets, and the jailer is in his jail. They're psychologically different. Lydia is the cognitive type. Explain to me through the gospel, she says. If you believe me to be a believer, come to my home. The slave girl is experiential. She needs to encounter God in a way that makes sense to her. She's a soothsayer, and she's converted by a clear, supernatural act of grace. The jailer needs something practical. I will be sacked or executed unless things are made right and you have not escaped from my prison. They're at different points in a spiritual journey. 
Lydia is clearly seeking God, the slave girl is clearly serving Satan, and the jailer is clearly unshaped by any notion of proper religion other than doing his duty. And yet, and yet, and yet they respond to the same gospel and are received into the same church. You see, the gospel of grace is for everyone. Grace is not doctrine, it's the practice of Christianity. It's the shaping of Christian living in our own lives and in the life of the church. Wouldn't you have just loved to be a fly on the wall of the church in Philippi in Lydia's house? What a mess. It's like the young lad I was told of recently who joined the fellowship and was asked to contribute to a time of testimony and exclaimed, smiling and enthusiastic to the group, well, I think you and God are just effing brilliant. <laughs> because lost people act lost and broken people act broken. Look at the diversity of this church in Lydia's house if these three people join. The only common factor is that they've met Jesus Christ. But, and this is an important line, church for everybody can change anybody. And that's what this passage is about. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ that arises from it, is the most potent instrument in the world to bring different people together. Lord, forgive us when we're not a church like that. In Paul's letters, as I close, he's not always warm and cuddly to the churches that he writes to. He sometimes gives them a real rocket. When many years later, Paul writes a book called A Letter to the Church in Philippi, what does he say about them? Well, you're a rum bunch, you are. He writes this, I thank my God every time I think about you. So he writes to a healthy church without criticism. It's a very rare book. A final word about Paul and about grace and change in Paul himself. Because like all disciples, and I don't care how old you are and how long you followed Christ, like all disciples, Paul is constantly finding that God is saying to him, now here's a new thing I want you to learn. And it's the same for us. Christian maturity and holiness is a continuing openness to learn of God to trust in Christ and to be obedient to the Spirit. Growth in grace and holiness come about as much in the mess of human life as the more normal markers of holiness such as prayer and reading the scriptures and sharing fellowship. It's of a peace. I close with this. Paul was a Jew. Not just any old Jew, he was a strict Jew, he was a Pharisee. 
who like millions of Jews then, and some of them even now down to today, prayed every day this prayer. I thank you, Lord, that you have not made me a Gentile, you have not made me a woman, and that you have not made me a slave. And at the clear leading of the Holy Spirit, in pagan Philippi, a healthy church is started with a wealthy woman, a redeemed slave, and a Gentile working man. What a church. And you can join it. In fact, many of you have. Because the clarion call is, if it's church for all them, then it's church for all you and us. And even this morning, some of you might consider, I need to take another step nearer and further into the community of Christ, which is for everybody and for everyone. Amen.